So if there are not any other questions, I want to go on to Martha, your case. I have a 56-year-old menopausal woman who was diabetic and hypertensive at the time of her diagnosis, both poorly controlled by history. She presented with a large palpable right breast mass with no clinical suggestion of inflammatory cancer and no palpable or other adenopathy. The remainder of her physical exam was unremarkable. Uh, core biopsy revealed infiltrating ductal carcinoma, ERPR 3+, HER2 new 3+, KI67 50%. A diagnostic CT set measured the mass at 5.3 by 4.7 centimeters, and there was no evidence of other metastatic disease. PET scan confirmed no uptake other than the primary tumor, and it had an SUV of 15. We didn't have an MRI coil at that time, and the insurance declined another MRI elsewhere. She strongly desired breast conservation if possible. So other staging studies showed an echo with an LVE fraction of 49%. So our considerations of adriocytoxan, taxol, herceptin weren't really feasible at that point. She was asymptomatic with this. This was just an unexpected finding. But again, she had poorly controlled diabetes and poorly controlled hypertension. And I had the cardiologist see her. The cardiologist thought that she was functional, that she needed to have medications for myocardiomyopathy, even though she wasn't symptomatic, and recommended starting her on low-dose combination of medicines, which included Corig. And they felt that she could continue on anherceptin-based treatment if adriamycin weren't included. So, Sandy, this lady has locally advanced breast cancer that's ER positive and HER2 positive, and you heard about her cardiac situation. What would you be thinking? Well, I would agree with the cardiologists. Actually, there have been a couple of studies looking at, they're very small studies, looking at these kind of patients and using carvedilol in them and then treating them with anthracyclines. So I think that the studies that I'm describing, though, those patients usually didn't have the poorly controlled hypertension and things like that. So there are a limited amount of data suggesting that if you get their ejection fractions in normal, and also Dr. Ewer at MD Anderson looked at a group of patients who had been on Herceptin, had abnormal ejection fractions, and then were treated with cardiac meds, they could actually be retreated with Herceptin. This is different than your situation, but I think this data is enough to support the use of a Herceptin-containing regimen in her, and I think that's her best choice for benefit for her. So I would totally agree with the cardiologist, and I would use a TCH regimen. As you know, the 06 data did show that there was a statistically significant benefit over the ACT without Herceptin. And I'm not sure she really is. What was her bra size? She's a short, heavy woman. I'd say she'd probably... A 38 or 40. So she may be able to have breast conservation, especially with the past CR rates with the Herceptin-containing regimens. With the NOAA data that was just presented by Luca Gianni, the path CR rate was about 40%, and then Buzzdar's data is in the 50% range. So she might get a very, she should get a very good clinical response, if not a complete pathologic response. Just to pick up on that NOAA paper that was presented at the San Antonio meeting, that, like the Buzzdar regimen, used trastuzumab and anthracycline at the same time. They did. They used a combination of both. Where's that heading in terms of clinical trials? Well, the ACASOG group is actually looking at a combination of FEC chemotherapy with Herceptin in HER2-positive patients. So that's being tested, again, to see not only the efficacy but the cardiac toxicity. I personally wouldn't do it. I mean, I'm a big proponent of TCH anyway, so I wouldn't do it at all. So, Cliff, how would you think through this case, and are there any situations where you would consider a Buzzdar-like 
anthracycline trastuzumab neoadjuvant therapy off study? Well, firstly, this patient is sort of a setup for toxicity. She's in her 50s. She has an ejection fraction below 50%. If it's accurate, and if I remember even the NSABP randomized data, she sort of is in the group where there's the highest pre-treatment probability that she would develop cardiomyopathy. So I agree that this is a case where you'd want to avoid that double hit. I will mention in passing that she's also not a great candidate for any cytotoxic chemotherapy. She's diabetic and hypertensive, poorly controlled. She's going to need growth factors. She's got a risk of neutropenic fever, and she's going to have a hard time safely getting through any regimen. And I think one has to recognize that. I personally think that from an evidence-based point of view, TCH would be the only real option for this patient, and that's what I would do. I will mention that there's a preoperative chemotherapy trial called CLGB40601. Lisa carries the PI, and we're just using weekly paclitaxel with one of three different anti-HER2 regimens, either trastuzumab or lapatinib or the two drugs together, all with weekly paclitaxel. And the point well, that's is... That's very similar to the NSABP. Aren't they doing almost the same thing? Similar, yeah. And so the issue is, it makes the point that in the context of trastuzumab, much of our debate about specific chemotherapy regimens may be muted. That is, that the trastuzumab effect may be a great leveler. We saw, for example, in stage 4 disease, that while there's an advantage for weekly over Q3 paclitaxel in the subset of patients getting trastuzumab, that difference isn't so obvious. And so I think that the question for these patients may not be, do they need the anthracycline, but how much chemo do they need at all? So would you consider a buzzed-R type approach in any situation off-study? Typically not, but I don't know what the risks really are, and certainly the reason I started to mention CLGB trial is when they go to the OR, they come off study. It's really a bad in-breast response, but the recommendation is for them to then get those dense AC and then follow that with the remainder of the year of trastuzumab. So we are doing that for patients with larger primaries. Helen? We at my institution were part of a trial for upfront chemotherapy with doxyl plus Herceptin. Mm-hmm. If any of you have an experience with that combination, I guess my other question was if you're going to use a taxane in this patient with diabetes, would you consider substituting a braxane for taxol here? Sandy? Well, I think it's a really good point because with, as you all know, treating lots of these patients, the steroids really do cause a lot of problems in the patients. And I think it would be reasonable to do that. I mean, ixabipalone would be another since it's one of my favorite drugs, but another choice, but it hasn't been studied as much. So I think it would definitely be very reasonable to remove the steroids. What about the doxol trastuzumab concept? I haven't personally used it. So you still get cardiac toxicity with doxol. It's much lower, but I would not use it in this patient because she's already got yeah, sir, Yeah, I just meant more in terms of the concept. Cliff, any thoughts about that well, strategy? Well, we have a phase two that is in press right now. It's from years ago where we gave the other liposomal doxorubicin, which is called D99. I think myocet's the name. And we demonstrated cardiac safety. We enrolled patients who had up to 240 milligrams per meter squared of conventional anthracyclines, doxorubicin specifically, before they came on. And we gave it with trastuzumab. So I think it is something to consider. One of the things that I think that NOAA and BuzzDAR studies, in a sense, keep alive is the possibility that the first preclinical models that did show this interaction between anthracyclines and trastuzumab may be real. Maybe it's something that can be captured, notwithstanding my earlier comments off study about maybe it doesn't matter. So I think it's worthy of study. But outside of a trial, this patient, I would avoid the anthracycline. So can you bring us up to date? Yeah, she received TCH in the full regimen. During the trial, her cardiac monitoring was regular. It was more frequent than you would normally do. With the cardiac medications, her echoes improved steadily up to about 60%. 
Her mass shrank clinically, and her breast improved on imaging studies to a three-centimeter mass, both on ultrasound and CAT scan. Surprisingly, she sort of saw the light, and she tightened up on her hypertension and her diabetes, and she tolerated the Decadron pretty well. So she kind of became much more of a participant in terms of her general health issues. At that point, however, she also decided she didn't want breast-conserving therapy, so she chose a mastectomy. And on completion therapy, she had the modified radical mastectomy. She did not have a sentinel node done initially, I should point out, before she started her new adjuvant treatment. The residual disease was a 2.3-centimeter infiltrating ductal mass that had some high-grade DCIS present. The composite histologic grade was a 2 and lymphovascular invasion was seen focally. Two of 22 nodes were positive at that point, and the largest was 1.9 centimeters. It was still strongly ERPR positive. The HER2 nu was still 3+, and the KS67 was still elevated. She got radiation therapy to the chest wall and all the draining nodes and began endocrine therapy with an aromatase inhibitor. She was postmenopausal at the time and then completed the Herceptin. This is four years now, and she's NED. She's maintained on almost no cardiac meds, actually, with an ejection fraction of 60%. How is she tolerating the AI? Very well. Actually, she's tolerating everything very well. She's active. She has two adult teenage kids. She works. She walks. Can I ask a question? Did she ever have a fish test? You know, I didn't do a fish at that time. I'm not second-guessing the treatment at all, right. and I would have treated her as you did. But, you know, this very strongly ER positive and this lack of a complete response to the pre-op therapy with the trastuzumab, all of this makes me wonder if it's really a HER2-positive breast cancer. And so the fish is negative. What do you do? You don't want to deny her the opportunity for benefit. I'm really just saying that it's conceivable that this isn't really a HER2-positive tumor. Sandy, what do we know about locally advanced HER2-positive disease in terms of outcome and also inflammatory breast cancer It's HER2-positive? Well, it's, as we talked about with the NOAA trial, which included a lot of inflammatory breast cancer patients and a big subset there, the pathologic complete response was very high in those patients. Unfortunately, when the patients with inflammatory breast cancer don't have the target, the HER2, they have a very poor survival, as you all know, and they present more often with metastatic disease. So if you divide it up into HER2 positive, you certainly would treat them as you did either with TCH or if you believe in using the anthracyclines and anthracycline-containing regimen followed by Taxol and Herceptin. And then all of those patients should really have a mastectomy with inflammatory breast cancer because they have such a poor local control, even with, well, certainly with wide excision. We did the study at the NCI many years ago where we actually didn't do mastectomy. We had very high local recurrence rates. So they should receive a mastectomy radiation if they're HER2 positive, as you did with your patient, treat them with Herceptin. And those that are HER2 negative, frequently after the mastectomy or at the mastectomy, they'll still have residual disease. In fact, the pathologic complete response rate is really low. And it's difficult to know what to do in those patients. And we, in the NSABP right now, we'll have a study, NSABP B45, for patients that could be inflammatory breast cancer patients or whatever kind of patients who have had neoadjuvant therapy, HER2 negative, and then have residual disease. They'll be randomized to get sunitinib or no further treatment. And they can get chemotherapy with that. That's one of the big 
controversies, I think, and be interesting to hear what people around here said, what you do in patients who have had neoadjuvant therapy, have surgery, and still have residual disease in the nodes. I mean, what do you do at that point? There's no randomized data suggesting chemotherapy benefits them, and they may be resistant to chemotherapy, and that's why we in the NSABP did choose to at least try a targeted therapy. But I know we've had raging controversies in the NSABP about whether to allow chemotherapy in that situation. So, Cliff, you mentioned the neoadjuvant study looking at lapatinib, trastuzumab, and the combination. We have that being looked at, plus a sequence in the adjuvant-alto trial, the NSABP neoadjuvant study. Where are we right now, and where do you think things are heading in terms of first combining these kinds of agents? What do we know now that we maybe didn't know before? And what about other HER2 agents that are coming in in terms of you know, where anti-HER2 therapy is heading? Well, firstly, I think it's a remarkably exciting area, and I think it's an area where for our field, there's a fair bit of appropriate pride to be taken because this is where we've done real translational science. We understand a target, and we have actually built drugs, not discovered them empirically. It's actually a, you know, it's quiet, but it's a revolution in a lot of ways. We have evidence that you can combine anti-HER2 drugs like lapatinib and trastuzumab. We have it from a randomized trial, Joyce O'Shaughnessy did, you know, modest impact, but it was a real salvage setting. And these patients had previously been treated with multiple lines of trastuzumab-containing therapy, and they gave them either lapatinib or lapatinib plus trastuzumab, and they showed a small difference, which people use as an argument for A, continued trastuzumab, and B, the value of the combination. We're studying the combination prospectively right now. Our group, with collaborators from Dana-Farber, looked at, in a standard adjuvant setting, AC, paclitaxel, that was dose-dense AC, paclitaxel weekly, and both trastuzumab and lapatinib, and Edith Perez and the group from Mayo Clinic did a very similar trial. These two trials were actually launched at the request originally of the NCI as preparation for a possible American randomized trial. And these two trials showed a really high rate, approximately 35% of grade 3 and greater GI toxicity, specifically diarrhea. So the cardiac toxicity everybody was worried about did not materialize, but the GI toxicity was absolutely dose-limiting. And actually, as a consequence, and for additional reasons, Alto is modified now, and their combined therapy arm has a lower dose because of this. But just to finish your other question, because I am so excited about this, I can't let it pass, it's remarkable what else we have targeting HER2. Just now at San Antonio, we got an update on HKI-272, which is a potent pan her tyrosine kinase inhibitor, and the drug is active enough that, at least as I understand their plans, they're going to randomize patients for that single agent as opposed to caplopatinib. And there are other studies of similar design, too. You have new antibodies, for example, pertuzumab, which binds a different domain higher up on the external portion of HER2, and it appears to provide activity even in trastuzumab refractory breast cancer, and it's now part of a randomized first-line phase 3 trial, Cleopatra, where patients get docetaxel and trastuzumab, or the same two drugs plus pertuzumab. So it's a dual antibody versus single antibody. That's actually your trial, right, Sandy? Yes, Mm -hmm. Jose Bazelga and I are the PIs. Well, Mm -hmm. right, and so full disclosure, I'm the chair of your DSMB. (laughs) (laughs) So team here. Right, and, or actually, I don't think I'm the chair. I think I'm just on it. Anyway, the other one is... TDM1, which is really gaining traction, and this again is trastuzumab with DM1, an antimicrotubule agent, bound to it by a linker, using HER2 as the target, deriving the antibody to the HER2, 
and we think internalizing the combination, breaking the link and delivering the chemo intracellularly, very high response rates. Plus, there are the heat shock protein 90 inhibitors, which are being developed by a half dozen companies now. Again, simply stated, these drugs added to trastuzumab provide robust activity in the trastuzumab refractory setting. So this is a field with a lot of options. Sandy? I agree that the data is very exciting. And it's probably the biggest buzz at San Antonio this year was that agent and the presentation was such a high response rate in patients who'd had previous HER2-targeted therapy. I mean, the one toxicity with it is the thrombocytopenia, which is supposedly very quick and comes back very quickly and doesn't cause a lot of problems clinically. But I, to me, it's exciting to think about using that as a single agent, if you would have it. I mean, a single agent of combination of things. And that's going to be tested, you know, head-to-head with Herceptin-containing regimens. It almost reminds me of the radioimmune therapy and lymphoma, where it's a sort of Trojan horse type thing. Have you had patients treated with it, Cliff? Yeah, we have had a pretty long-standing experience in the phase one and two trials, and we have patients on it now for more than a year. So it's active. And by the way, I didn't mention herbituximab too. I think it's called herbituximab. I have to double check at the CD and HER2 linked dual antibody. It's just a lot going on here. I just want to And also HER3 monoclonal antibodies. People are really looking into the science of the whole HER family and thinking that the HER3 may be the most important of the receptors. And also there's the issue, and we were talking about a little bit this morning, Cliff, of, you know, continuous biologic blockade. We were talking about as it relates to BEV, but also in terms of HER2. And could you comment a little bit on the German study that was reported looking at continuation of trastuzumab? And do you think we're moving towards a situation where we're just going to keep people on anti-HER2 therapy indefinitely in the metastatic setting? So I know you asked me that because I was so vocal in believing that you should stop trastuzumab at progression. And that's because we had no data, and I really thought it was just hype. So the German group led by Gunter von Minkwitz did a trial where they basically duplicated the pivotal capecitabine-lipatinib study, except it was with trastuzumab. Patients on trastuzumab and other drugs stopped because of progression. They were randomized to CAPE or CAPE and more trastuzumab, a drug on which their tumor had been growing. And remarkably, the response rate was about 50%, relatively speaking, greater. And the time to progression was longer with important big asterisk, which was that the study was closed early for accrual problems related to the availability of lipatinib. Nevertheless, it has this robust signal of activity. So your question is, does that mean you should just keep hammering on trastuzumab as you cycle through therapies? And I think your question is actually harder to answer than it even seems at first. There are patients who probably do respond to continued anti-HER2 pressure, but there are patients who probably don't. And I think one thing that we would have to consider for expensive biologics is if there's any way we could actually identify those subsets. A patient who gets trastuzumab, I'm making this up, but has progression in three months with their first-line chemo, doesn't strike me as likely to benefit from the second-line continuation of that. But another one who goes 18 months and progresses, maybe. 